0: And now, coming to you live from Helsinki, Finland, at, World, at Worldcon 75, is Jonathan Strine and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast!
1: And how do you make your voice do that?
2: <laughs> I've tried to do it. I've tried to imitate that, and that's hopeless. We all sound almost as bad as he does. <laughs> um, but... Um, okay, Walter John, congratulations first of all on being a guest of honor, and congratulations on Quillifer, Quilifer, uh, exclamation. Quill which is a great title to say, Quillifer. Uh, but here's a question, because having, I don't know when I started reading, was it hardwired? Was it, and then there's the, the look at that, the Magistral series, the, and it, it, the historical novels. Uh, my first question is about genre. What, don't you pay any attention to it at all? <laughs>
1: um, well, my editor sort of makes me do that. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm all about lowering barriers, not raising them. So um, I sort of, I have a, a zillion projects, um, some of which I've started in, and are in a whole variety of genres. But uh, they tell me I'm a science fiction writer now, so I can't do anything else. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I try to follow where the muse leads and then um, hope that the money kind of follows afterwards.
0: <laughs> but you started I, off writing sea adventure stories. I right?
1: did start, start off writing sea adventure stories, yes. I had um, It's a series called Privateers and Gentlemen. And, uh, you know, I, I was kind of aware that they were journeyman books, so I didn't want to use my full name on them. And they ended up, and, and actually, I wanted to use my um, Finnish grandfather's name. I wanted it to be V. V. Kuzikowski, yeah. <laughs> because I thought no one would ever forget that name, even if they couldn't pronounce it. It would sort of stick in the head, and mm-hmm. yeah. uh, But uh, my editor informed me that it was going to be John Williams, and so that's, that's where they appeared. Um, but I had uh, great fun writing those books. I had a 10-year, uh, rather 10-book arc planned, and as it happens, the market for historical fiction collapsed five books in, uh, so I never got to finish the series. One of many fin- series that I've not yet got to finish. By the way, but you're back in the historical territory
2: now. Yeah, sort of. Sort yeah. of. Uh, and and one of—is it fair to say that you're one of Walter's leading students? <laughs> I think that's fair oh, to say. G- grab a microphone.
3: Yeah. One of the many leading students. Uh, I uh, went to Taos Toolbox. The inaugural year of Taos Toolbox in 2007, along with Kat Rambo, who is currently the Sifwa president, mm-hmm. and yeah, and um, also Saladin Ahmed. Mm-hmm. And um many other wonderful people, many of whom have written fantastic things, and myself, who am up for the campbell award this year, so that's yeah. pretty nice okay
2: and my argument was beat would be that that the influence shows in in, in your own work because you've and, and the historical interest shows as well you have Cobalt plumbers and things like that in your fiction, <laughs> uh, which is an interesting thing to me because it, indi- it indicates that there's this blurring of the line between historical fiction and fantasy in general these days.
1: Um, I think what happened was that uh, when the market for in the states for historical fiction collapsed, mm-hmm. uh, which happened by the way in April 1981, <laughs> um, the I was uh, there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just the uh, the people who would otherwise be writing historical fiction ended up in other genres. So a lot of them started writing historical romance. And there, uh, there's, since then, there have been uh, uh, a lot of alternate history science fiction, uh, historical fantasy, and uh, lots and lots of historical detective series. Um, they're basically mystery novels set in ancient Rome or Victorian England or wherever. Uh, so I think those those writers just found other genres that they could fit their interests and talents into.
0: Did you feel that uh, Did you feel that starting off writing basically adventure fiction taught you about writing story itself better? That it uh, sets you up for the kind of novels you're going to write later on.
1: I think in retrospect it helped because the. The, the the books are, are interweaved. The, the books don't have a single protagonist. They have, it's, it's a, uh, I'm writing about an entire family. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I learned how to set up elements in book one that weren't going to pay off until book four uh, or farther on down the line. And uh, that kind of uh, intricate planning
3: yeah.
1: uh, is something that, that, fortunately, I've gotten much better at than when I started. But uh
3: you also have, uh, Walter, you also have a real respect for, for physical limitations in your science fiction. Like your space battles mm-hmm. are so fascinating in that, that you actually respect physics in a way that only a person who has written about sailing really can, I think.
1: Yeah, um, I actually have gravity and inertia in my spaceships. Uh, and uh, and I, just, I just thought I was cheating you know that because if you know if this if if this the starship enterprise was actually doing those maneuvers in reality that everybody on board would just be stripped electrons they would <laughs> they wouldn't even be undifferentiated parrello anymore they'd just be elementary particles um and so
0: i i i thought that would give an element
1: of realism that would just uh make the whole project a little more interesting
0: it occurs to me that in this discussion we've skip, skipped a couple of important steps. At least one of them is why we've asked Kelly to join us, you know, to, to talk mm-hmm. to Walter about his work today. Because, I mean, you've been a lifelong reader of his work.
3: I have, yes.
0: Okay. Uh, you know, a, a writing student. Sorry, sorry. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yes, uh, lifelong. Absolutely. When I read Walter's books to this day, I, I hear the rhythm of my own brain uh, in his his diction. And I, I'm sorry, but you you made this brain. Uh-huh. You and a few other writers, uh, Connie Willis, who was your co um, co teacher at uh, yeah. 2007 Taos Toolbox. Yeah. Um, and 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 Michael Bishop are are the the the. Triumvirate of, of my, my my brain.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that I'm sharing your brain with those two individuals. I, <laughs> They're good really... people to share a brain with. Yeah.
3: But no, absolutely. When uh, I. Your storytelling. For instance, I recently reread um, Wallstonecraft, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic uh, story about Mary Shelley. And, and as I was reading it, um, I realized that I, I felt as though I was reading my own writing, something that I hadn't remembered writing, simply mm. because the way you structure your sentences is the way I structure my sentences, because I learned that from you.
1: Uh, well, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, hope, I hope the sentences work well for you. I, um, I, I I always feel that the semicolon is underused in popular fiction, and uh, and I... <laughs> You know, I, I try to be the master of the semicolon. Uh,
3: <laughs> I, I have been writing a lot of sentences. I, I,
1: I, I, I do write sort of complex sentences, uh, at least some of the time, and, um, which I have discovered is a problem when they're transferred to audiobooks because some of the readers cannot handle complex sentences. And so they read each sentence word by word more or less like this, and um, it somewhat detracts from the drama, I feel.
2: And, and then suddenly they realize that, oh, that was a subordinate clause, and I thought it was a paragraph. Um, which can be confusing. Uh, the sentence thing is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, because if we're going to talk about what is really going to be a series of. of mm-hmm. a, a series of thick fantasy books, which normally I don't respect people for doing. Um, but, but if they're worth reading at the sentence level and if they're worth reading at the plot level. I want to talk a little bit about the business of world building. There's a whole thing about world building Hmm. Uh, And there are a number of fantasy novels and novelists, who I won't name until we go to the bar later, um, who are great at world building and have not really thought about getting around to the plot until volume three. This has a lot of plot in it. Yes. Uh, And it's... uh, I am plot boy. uh, You're you're aware of that. (laughs) Um, When you're conceiving something... This large scale, you obviously are not starting at the sentence level. Mm-hmm. The historical setting is pretty accurately historical, even though it's not named as, uh, mm-hmm.
1: as, as what is it, late medieval, early Renaissance Europe? It's, well, yeah, it's sort of, sort of uh, Northern European Renaissance. Right. Yeah.
2: And, um, and there's... I'm not. I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that there's not a huge amount of fantasy in this. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's crucial where it is.
1: Yeah. Um, but apart, one of the things that I, I, I always feel that you know, and I'm not going to put a dragon in my story unless I have something new to say about dragons, mm-hmm. and so, um, and I didn't in this particular volume. Next volume, yes. By the way. Uh,
3: <laughs> dragons. How many dragon. dragons?
1: Uh, one. one. That's one. all it takes.
3: <laughs> Excellent.
0: Uh, well, well, since we're sort of talking around it, and we're, we're here primarily to talk about this book, Quilifer, where did you start with it? Okay. But, well, all right.
1: How it started was uh, I live in a rural part of New Mexico, and it's, uh, uh, and it's uh, uh, there are small farms and ranches. Um, And they're all lining along the the Rio Grande River, and they are irrigated. And so Mm -hmm. you can walk along the irrigation ditches and get very pleasant views, and it's it's a a lovely walk if if the weather is right. And so I was out walking along the irrigation ditch, and I was listening to an audio book of a biography of Shakespeare.
2: Hmm.
1: And at the end of that 90-minute walk, I had all six Quilifer novels plotted.
2: (laughs) What was the audio book about Shakespeare? So we can all check it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and I, I don't know. It's because I, when I was in college, I kind of majored, majored in the Elizabethans, and it's uh, it's source material that I've never actually used in writing. Uh, and and suddenly, just everything came pouring out, and it clicked. And I've you know I've acted Shakespeare, I've read Shakespeare, I've written about Shakespeare, <laughs> and. Uh, and just suddenly this whole thing came plotted out and the and the character came out, and his voice came out hmm. mm-hmm. uh, and uh and it was irresistible yeah, i i mean i mean I have never written big fantasy before uh and i except for the Metropolitan series, which I thought was fantasy, and everyone else thought it. was some kind of really weird science fiction uh but uh um so you know, there, and there came a point in my career when I had nothing else to write, so I wrote this. Uh, one of the things, uh, by the way, I, I'm, I'm not edging away from Kelly. <laughs> the, the,
2: the microphone is over here, but I, I, really, I really like her. Um, and you're a literary guy, and that's, that shows up a lot in this. There's a, there's a kind of classic adventure fiction uh, vibe to it. And uh, one of the things that I, one of the quotations I like to repeat is one from uh, one of Ursula Le Guin's short essays talking about various people uh, who are similar to Margaret Atwood, but probably not Margaret Atwood, um, in which she said, you can't write good science fiction or fantasy without ever having read any of it. But you mm-hmm. can't write good science fiction or fantasy if you haven't read anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting to me is that, that sh- the Shakespeare thing is interesting, but there's a whole uh, Alexandre Dumas historical kind of thing. There's a lot
1: of literary influence in this. Mm-hmm.
2: That's it's
3: that's also a the sentimental journey. journey oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, the first book in this series is kind of picaresque. Yeah. yeah I think it's it's safely to say. I mean, there is there is an arc and all of that, but um, there are a lot of uh, separate incidents and adventures that do not necessarily connect with each other until farther along the line. Um, I'm, once again, I'm setting up stuff that happens in book four. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope I do it in an entertaining way.
0: For all that it's it's a new series and a new character, this really does tie back in all sorts of ways to your previous work. Hmm. Uh, And, I mean, uh, obviously the type of book it is ties back to the sea adventure novels Hmm. and those sorts of things. But there's also a lot of I mean, You were saying today, Kelly, in Jack Magistral and everything. Yes. Hmm. So this is a kind of character that appeals to you to create. Well, yeah. I, um, I mean,
1: who do you like better, Luke Skywalker or Han Solo? Who would you rather hang out with? At the Mos Eisley can- Cantina, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it's, it's Han Solo, right? So um, the, the, the the roguish character has has an appeal, and uh, and so I have occasionally written about roguish characters, uh, and Quillifer is one. Uh, Quillifer is an eighteen year old smartass mm-hmm. um, who is determined to make an impact of the wor- on the world, and he doesn't quite know what kind of impact he's going to make, so he's Sort of striking out in all sorts of directions, but he's ex- he's very very clever, uh, and uh, but the problem with being very very clever and not quite knowing what you're doing is that you can outsmart yourself rather easily, and that also happens.
2: <sighs> well, one of the, one of the interesting things about writing a character like this, it seems to me, writing a pica- writing a picaresque character is that there is a. An element in, in the comedy, where the in writing comedy, frequently it's been said, obviously, by Aristotle, among others, that the audience, the reader, feels that he or she knows more than the character does.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And gradually the character gains comp- competence during the course of the novel to where we're impressed by how much sh- more shrewd he is than we expected him to be. Mm-hmm. And and so that maturation seems to me to be the focus of at least this volume. I right. Either the next two
1: and volumes. Uh, and the next. Yes. Uh, if if I ever get to complete the series, uh, you know, by the by the sixth volume, he will be an old guy.
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, basically, we meet him and he's kind of naked, run, you know, running across the roofs of a of, of a town, sort of covered in bird shit and in all kinds of trouble, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's. And, and really. then sort of looks up. We've. Him. I
1: think we've all been there. <laughs> uh,
3: so, so are you dry, and do you see yourself in quilifer?
1: Uh, quilifer is a lot more successful at being a smart ass than I ever was when I was eighteen, I think, but
0: <laughs> for all that Quilifer is the new book, and we're looking you know, that you will enjoy this book it is a, a a lot of fun It's not the only thing that you're working on right now. that's right. Yeah. You're also working on an extension to one of the major series that you've worked on in your entire career, uh, an extension of of the Praxis universe. Right. Woo-hoo! <laughs> <Yeah>! <laughs> and you're speaking to someone who helped edit, you know, an extension to that just the, just last year in your previous novel, Impersonations. I'm curious, mm-hmm. where did you start with that? Where did where did the Praxis come from? Um. The
1: praxis came from an editor saying, I'd really like to see a space opera from you." <laughs> and as I had not sold a book in five years, I thought perhaps that's a hint I should follow up on. Uh, and so uh, uh, I produced a, a space opera proposal and, and sold it, but then that editor left, <laughs> and then the other editor left. So the praxis ended up with ten editors
2: mm-hmm.
1: over the, for one book. <laughs> uh, mo- most of them in England, because it was published simultaneously in both countries, but uh, so um, there was a certain amount of confusion at the top, I like to think, and and as a result of that, the the first series of three books didn 't um, didn 't sell as well as they'd liked. Yeah. And, and I kept pointing out to them that the second book had shipped twice as many copies as the first, and wasn't this a good idea? But they said, no, we've already made up our minds. You know, and uh, so uh, the Praxis books are a series that the readers would not allow to die. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're freaking magnificent.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, what, I, what I wanted to do was, it's not, ju- it's not just a space opera. It's sort of a comment on space opera. And space, Because I thought, of course, if I'm going to do space opera, I'm going to do full-blown space opera. I'm going to have space battles. I'm going to have a galactic empire. But basically, a galactic empire is kind of a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I, I couldn't figure out any reason why people would start a galactic empire. Uh, so I had to have the human race and a bunch of other alien races conquered by one uh, rather thick group of aliens um, who then had to be shuffled off stage uh, before I could actually continue with the story of my characters so, so the, the, the early scene is that the last of these alien conquerors commit suicide um, which is allowable in their culture uh, and suddenly all of these subordinate races find themselves on their own uh, and, with that because, and all they know how to do at this point is follow orders They're, at least that's how the, all, all the upper class, ruling class thinks so uh, suddenly they have to tell themselves what to do and work out how to run an empire, and uh, catastrophe ensues. But anyway, the, the, these books have all, they've never been out of print. They've all been through multiple printings. I think the Praxis has been through like 10 printings or something. And somebody, David Pomerico uh, at Harper, finally noticed. <laughs> that these books had been in print for 15 years, and uh, and we're still in print, and we're not likely to go out of print, and so he said, I should get some more of these, um, which is something that apparently never occurred to anyone else. So, uh
0: I'm not well, speak actually, about thick. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, Kelly, as a reader, what p- appealed to you about the Praxis?
3: Oh, God, it's so good. <laughs> uh, the characters, I'll just sit back the, and let the Kelly The characters talk. are freaking believable. So, so good. Uh, Gareth Martinez, fantastic, really well-rounded, excellent um, uh, starship captain. Starts off as a lieutenant, makes his way up through the ranks, despite the fact that he is... Somewhat, in comparison to the uh, upper class idiots around him, who all belong in a uh, in a in a Bertie Wooster sort of scene, um, makes his way up through the ranks and ends up um, being the kind of character who literally has to blow up planets, uh, which is is horrifying and is also fantastic. And his love interest, mm-hmm. uh, Caroline Sula, who has one of the best uh, backstories for. Any person in any book anywhere, absolutely, just magnificent. Talk about a strong female character. She's just a strong character, period. And when they come together, there are fireworks, and they blow each other apart. And planets yeah, get blown good. apart. And 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 they absolutely both of them rise to the occasion and and make their mark on the world, which all of Walter's characters do in one way or another, make mm-hmm. their mark on the world, which I find incredibly satisfying. And then, of course, there are the space battles, which are immaculate and fascinating. And you can actually see them happening. It's. Uh,
1: I get letters from amazing. physicists telling me what I did right, which I, I always like. it's amazing. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, yes, if you haven't read these books, read them. My God, they're good. And there's five of them, so yeah in there
0: yeah was the return to the praxis though purely a, a publishing decision, or was it something you were pulled back to anyway? I mean
1: well, I, you know I, I had always had more books planned in that series, and I could never understand why these books you know weren't weren't purchased by a publisher, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I I had actually got interest in in them from another publisher who, as it turned out, couldn't buy them for various mm. reasons internal to that
0: publisher. Sure, yeah. And So I had the proposal out. And then uh, along the way, you wrote impersonations, which is mm-hmm, right. uh, you know, an extension of the story of Carasula. Right. Well, it,
1: it's there are I planned two novellas. One I wanted a solo, Martinez. Uh, Story and a Solo Sula story to find out where where they were at after this um, uh, uh, interplanetary war that they had involved in, and, and 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 how they had resolved, you know, found found a settlement with what had happened to them and what they were, and and one of them I, I wrote while I was writing the novels, uh, and that was uh, Investments, yep. which ended up in a Robert Silverberg anthology um, in a kind of. Uh, Badly edited version. It was. It was actually my fault that it was badly edited, not the fault of the editor. But uh, so I cleaned it up, and it is now available as an ebook. Mm. Uh, and uh, the other one was Impersonations, which was a solicitation from Tor.com. They from from. In fact, you at Tor.com. Uh, and uh, and and I said, well, you know, I have this idea for a novella, but it's. Um, it's based on a series that's controlled by another publisher. And to my amazement, Tor was all right with that. So there's one book in this series that's from a different publisher than another. And it started out as a novella, and I'm afraid it became a novel by the time I wrote it. So Tor got a novel for the price of a novella, and I think they're probably pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think they are. Yeah. And
0: I should stress it stands alone, which is yes. an important yeah. part of yeah. it. I mean
1: yeah in fact you know if if you want a taste of this series, read that book,
0: you could start there yeah. yeah and and where are you going with it roughly now? Um, well, the first the first series was about
1: uh, one species rebelling against the others hmm. uh, because they were the the first of the species to be conquered by these conquerors, and they thought they had seniority, and they thought that they should just step into the conquerors' place, and the other species, including humanity, was opposed to this so that was that was a three book uh, conflict yeah. um, and in this next one it 's everybody against the human race,
0: yeah
1: and the first series the first of the the first of the books is called the Accidental War.
0: Yeah. Okay. Across your career you've written a number of series and you seem to be attracted to serial narratives as as a storyteller. What what is it that attracts you if it does and if you agree with that point hmm. about Serial and series narratives, other than the business sides of it. Other what are than the challenges.
1: Well, yeah, I, 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 I occasionally get an idea that's really, really big. Yeah. And occasionally, I, you know, and earlier in my career, I made the mistake of trying to cram this really, really big story between in a single volume. And uh, so I ended up uh, writing very thick books and blowing my deadlines and, <laughs> and getting everybody teed off at me. So, uh, so now i real, i realized wait a minute i can take this really big story and i can cut it up into multiple volumes and get paid three times as much <laughs> and and know what my living where where my living is coming from for the next several years which uh, you know is always a useful thing if you're in a precarious position like mine
3: and you do so much uh, world building as well mm-hmm. your your worlds are really really well developed so you know, it's, yeah. it's good to get more bang out of your buck for that work as well mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah, it's uh, if you're if you're reading science fiction or fantasy, there's a certain amount of effort that the reader has to go into in order to learn what kind of world you, this story is taking place in. Um, which and and if you're if you're reading in a series, you can just, you know, slip back into that world because you've already done the work reading the previous books. So, um, it's not so much that I'm attracted to series as I'm just attracted to really big stories. Well, now that we've sort of lionize the series
2: as a form. I was going to talk about a couple of one-off novels that I liked. Oh, please do. um, And one of the, the more recent of the two is Implied Spaces, which is one of the more intellectual titles in science fiction. That sounds like a book of literary criticism. And the whole set of spatial relationships becomes a plot element that Mm -hmm. uh, I thought was fascinating and I didn't think I'd seen that idea before. And that's fairly unusual in science fiction.
1: Um... Yeah, well, I certainly, well, that's why I wrote it. You well, know, is that that, that, that idea, I, I hadn't seen that idea before. Although, usually, I am informed later on. when I, Whenever I come up with a really brilliant idea, I'm told that Robert Silverberg wrote it in 1962. <laughs> uh, that's true of everything, though. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, and, and that was also, incidentally, a book that I had an enormous amount of fun writing.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, because that was, uh, it, had, it had to do with the singularity or a near singularity, and and it ended up being a kind of, uh, a s- series of sequences about what the singularity means to different subgenres. This, is, this, is, it wasn't actually how I plotted it, but it's a, what the singularity means to high fantasy, what the singularity means to military science fiction, what the science fiction, what the singularity means to, uh, a mystery or a thriller. Uh. Um, well, that's what was fascinating about
2: yeah. it. Was, it was a journey through different genres, which was kind of where we started. Mm-hmm. And, an, and another genre, and this is a novel that, uh, I don't hear much about it, but I, I remember reviewing it a long time ago, and that was your big mega blockbuster disaster novel, The Rift. Yes. Uh, which started out as a big mega blockbuster disaster novel and turned into a really interesting commentary on racism and power and social construction, and it became a completely different novel from what anybody would have expected from mm-hmm. the best-seller genre.
1: Yeah, well, there, there I go again. Um, <laughs> uh, Yes, the rift. uh, Let's see. Okay, there is a giant earthquake fault running down the middle of the United States, and it goes off about every 300 years. And and in fact, has is is has one of the the last time it went off was 1811, and uh, it was one of the largest earthquakes on record in the history of the planet. (laughs) All right, but there were only a few thousand Europeans living in the area at the time. Uh, uh, and a whole lot of Indians, but we don 't know their story so um, but now there are fifty million people that are living on this fault, and none of them are in earthquake proof buildings, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they 're doing their best to ignore the fact that this exists so uh, and I thought this would be a really grand idea for a big breakthrough best selling novel mm-hmm. um, and and I wrote it, and I got paid a nice. Some for it, I have to say. that it was, it was anticipated to be a big bestseller. But because of internal politics at the publishing house, um, they, the, the, pro, okay, the, the publisher was losing tens of millions of dollars a year. Mm. Uh, I heard $80 million a year. <laughs> um, and uh, there was one division that was making money, and that was the science fiction division. So rather than imitate the science fiction division and make money, all of the other publishing company executives decided that the science fiction division had to be destroyed because it was making them look bad. Uh-huh. This is very Hollywood, you know. But uh, so my book was deliberately sabotaged by the powers that be. Um, and sort of published under the wrong name, in the wrong genre, in the, and, and because the whole idea was to make the science fiction division lose lots and lots of money so that they could fire everybody. And, in fact, the the, paper, the mass market paperback of The Rift was the last book published really? in the science fiction line. And trust me, you do not want that ever to happen to your book. So, so the, actually, the, the sales of the book were okay. They were... About the equivalent of my sales elsewhere, uh, but they were expected to be much higher, and so that was that was mm-hmm. my you 'll never work in this town again moment uh, that uh, so i, I didn 't sell another book for five years until I, till I sold the praxis uh, but um, anyway, now that book is my best selling ebook really mm-hmm. it is it is just rocketing off the virtual
2: shelves, but what I liked about it and what I was mentioning was the, uh, the the, the, the aftermath, which is usually, um, I don't know, in disaster movies, it's all the three or four surviving characters hugging one another and mm. saving a puppy. <laughs> the aftermath gets really complicated. The society that emerges after this earthquake is mm. much more relevant today than it might have been when the book came out.
1: Yeah, um, that, that when you're when you're going into the Mississippi Delta, you're going into a lot of history. Yeah you know and and so there's you know the Trail of Tears and the slavery and the civil war, uh, and a lot of people a lot of places have not sort of mentally recovered from any of that so um, and and there 's a lot of religious fundamentalism um, essentially because their way of life was destroyed All right? that's, that's, uh they believe in the apocalypse apocalypse because the apocalypse has already happened to their culture. <laughs>
2: And one of the things that I was going I – I actually have it up in my room. I was going to bring it down. I found a copy of a Locust interview with you from probably 1996 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the usual what I'm writing next. But you had this digression on the problem of the 21st century is going to be fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that before the rest of us were. And certainly before the rest of us were dealing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the, the, basically the, the challenge of the 20th century was dealing with utopia. Yeah. And and fortunately, we got rid of all the utopias. Yeah, that problem. Too. Uh, and that yeah, and that fundamentalism would be the, the major problem in the 21st century. So, I think I'm right on the money. Yeah,
3: your uh, your literary influence shows through in the rift too, which is uh, kind of maybe not expected for a disaster novel, but uh, Twain.
1: Yes, yeah, there's, there's, way. there are, yeah, it's, well, you know, it's about a white kid and a black guy on a raft going down the Mississippi, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. and there are yeah. certain, certain
0: comparisons are inevitable, I feel, <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'm curious as well, since we're jumping around a little bit. I mean, you mentioned this earlier, uh, Kelly, but once a year you disappear off up into a mountain pass with a bunch of students yes. and spend your time working on oh, you work on them teaching writing. My first question is, what draws you to doing that? Is it a need to pay back? Is it uh, what it teaches you yourself? Um, it's well, it's, it's a lot of things. Firstly, I, I taught Clarion
1: for the first time and really enjoyed it, so that was kind of a motivation. Uh, but also, um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to do some paying back, or paying forward, as it's now called. I couldn't pay back any of the people who, would, who had helped me start it. I mean, I remember at my very first Worldcon, Gordon R. Dixon was walking around the room parties with a manuscript of mine under his arm trying to sell my novel to editors by hand, right? (laughs) And how how do you pay that guy back? You can't. You know, it just can't be done. And and he didn't succeed, but still, I mean, what a nice guy, right? Uh, And so... um, so I, I couldn't pay any of these people back, so I decided to try and, and pay forward and help other writers that were breaking in, uh, talented people like Kelly. Um, and, uh, and it's been going 10 years. We just had our 10th anniversary toolbox. Um, and, uh, and currently, I'm, I, I teach it primarily with uh, uh, Nancy Kress, who, I should point out, is an absolutely superb teacher. She just, I'm in awe of her every year. Uh, because she's just so good, and uh, this year we had Georgia R. R. Martin um, as a guest speaker, and uh, Steve Gould, who is continuing the Avatar series—not uh, the—not the anime, but the—but uh, uh, the, the TV or movies, the movie series. Um, James Cameron's Avatar, yeah. okay, uh, and E.M. Tippett's, who's kind of an indie pub guru. So we try to we try to cover all the bases, not just how to get published, but but indie pub and other. The other interesting thing about having you and Kelly on together
2: is that because Kelly, you're still a, a new writer, um, and you don't mind, but you can't have the career. You can't have the beginning of a career. That Walter John had. You can't, are oh, gonna have Gordy Dixon going around hand selling your manuscript. What's it like to break in today compared to?
3: Well, we have the internet, which is fantastic.
1: So you don't need Gordy
2: Dixon.
3: No, we don't. Well, um you know, when, when.
1: If Gordy Dixon ever offers, <laughs> I'd say yes, you know. But, yeah.
3: When Walter was starting out, I mean, he had to send, like, paper, like, pieces of tree through the mail. Something like that. And 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 wait for checks and that sort of thing and and. Uh, I still
1: wait for checks. <laughs> yeah, that's uh-huh. true.
3: Yes. Uh, it, what is fantastic about being a new writer right now is the online community of writers is incredibly incredibly rich, um, and you can find your peer group a lot easier than you could say 20 years ago. Yeah. You can find market information a lot easier. You can find advice a lot easier. Um, it's 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 a wonderful thing to be to be breaking into the field at this point, mm-hmm. and also wonderful to have the opportunity to spend two weeks up a mountain with Walter. Yay! Yeah. And not have to. Uh, you know, workshops are fantastic, and the primary thing that a workshop gives you is contact with people. Who are your your mentors and 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 people you really look up to, but also the people who are your peers who who um, attend the workshops with you and become your lifelong friends.
2: Well, Connie, so. you've mentioned uh, Connie. I'm sorry, I was thinking Connie Willis, but you mentioned Connie Willis and, and Michael Bishop and Walter.
1: Uh, who were your mentors, Walter? Who who taught you how to write? Boy. Um, it, this doesn't exactly show in my writing. Vladimir Dabakov is oh. is probably one of my biggest writing gods. Um, Thomas Pynchon yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is is right, but that's that's very obvious in Hardwired if you know how to yeah, read that, Hardwired. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chip Delaney
3: mm-hmm.
1: in science fiction. Roger Zelazny. Um, yeah, all of this, all of the '60s wave. I mean, you know. Kate Wilhelm oh. and Ursula Le Guin and Norman Spinrad and from Michael Moorcock. Did, hmm? did, you, did you have specific teachers the way Kelly has had? No, they? no. I, I I you know, I would have loved the internet <laughs> <laughs> when I was when I was breaking in. I was in my twenties, I was kind of alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew some other writers, but they weren't doing the kind of thing that I wanted to do, and I, I had no mentors, I had no teachers, I had to sort of hack through the undergrowth myself and figure out how to do it. Um, and and that is that's that's something I, I wish on nobody, yeah. really. Uh, it was it was really tough, and I was really poor <laughs> for a lot of years while I was um, trying to write fiction full time and support myself with a whole bunch of really stupid, ill-paying jobs.
0: Um, yeah, we've had our five-minute warning, so I wonder if that might be a reasonable time to ask if anybody in the audience has any questions that they would like to ask. Probably the first. Six people to get to, to walk okay, that's oh, all right we'll we'll get a copy of quilifer on the way
1: out so we're okay d- um, I should also point out that the that the printer of these particular advanced reading copies gave us a special gift by eliminating all of the italics. <laughs> I hope he was paid extra for that, because yeah. that was just a bonus oh, okay. we hadn 't been anticipating, so some of the passages may read a little
0: more bland than they were intended, so just <laughs> to give you a so with that, what I would like to do, if it 's right with you, is i 'd like to ask you all to help me thank our guests today, first of all, the fabulous, wonderful Kelly Robson. Our guest of honour, the multi-talented, award-winning, major figure in the science fiction field, Walter Williams And this has been, as it always will be, the Coot Street Podcast. Thank you very much.